So how many of you have heard of the Appalachian Trail? Yeah, so it probably runs relatively close to here, right? Yeah, a couple ridges over. Well, it comes right up the back of Sugarloaf, um, pretty close to that amphitheater, actually, uh, that you saw there, and runs right through our town. Um, so mom's going to kind of give an introduction to hitchhiking in our town. Yeah, so around about the late summer and early fall, after they've gone through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles starting in Georgia, they start to trickle in to where we live. And you will see them on the paved road. And I do say the paved road because there are not many in our town. Route 27 is the state road that goes through. They come down off the back of Sugarloaf. And, then they, and, and oftentimes they will be hitchhiking up 27, not to cheat, but to go into the nearest town where they'll often have a mail drop and there's a motel and they can get a shower and things like that. So we made a commitment as a family that when we saw one, we would, we would pick them up and we would spare them that extra, you know, whatever miles to get into town. The problem is, how many, is anybody ever here picked up an AT hitchhiker? Yeah. What is the problem, Earl, with AT hitchhikers? Yeah. I mean, if you guys come upon some AT hitchhikers around Virginia, they may not smell that bad. Like, Georgia's not that far away. By the time they get to Maine, I mean, you smell them before you see them. They are ripe. Yeah. Isn't uh, it On an interstate. Not in the great state of Maine. That's no, sure. not, a, no, not no. on a state road. Just on the interstate, usually. Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, these, these folks, you know, they have big backpacks. Big they're easily identifiable. Yeah, you know what they are they and what they're doing. They smell. And mom would pull over to pick them up, and we would have to share the back seat with these guys and girls. And we'd be like, no, mom, please, not again. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, we would carry a plastic tarp. Still do. That we would put on the seat. Because if you, they sit on the seat, on, on your cloth seat, it'll never come out. And that's because they've been, I mean, I mean, in fairness to them, but their packs smell. I mean, just everything smells. And the kids, they just want to know, why are we doing it? And I said, well, because it's not about you. We're going back to that, right? You're not the center of the universe. It's not about you. These people have been walking long and hard. We know what they're doing. These people are not, like, they're not going to hold us up at gunpoint. They're, they're, they, they are so tired and so stinky. They just want a bath, and we want them to have a bath, too. <laughs> We thought that it was important for them to experience a little bit of the Good Samaritan in their lives and to realize that we can be kind to even temporary neighbors, even people who can't pay you back, even people you will never see again, right? What good is it to you if you love those who love you, right? It's easy to take care of the people who take care of you, but these are folks we will never see again, and let's be... Uh, Jesus to them. So those temporary neighbors, you know, this was important. So. Yeah. So I don't live in Maine anymore. And uh, taking this principle elsewhere, you know, use at your own discretion. But I have to say, the most powerful conversations I have had in my entire life have been pitch picking up hitchhikers. I struggle to drive past them 
now. Those values that were instilled in me. Now, I certainly use discretion a lot. I do drive by many that I'm like, that doesn't seem good. Um, but in Utah, it's a relatively safe place. A lot of times, yeah, there are people just who are out on a hike trying to get back to their car or in the river world, the kayakers and rafters. A lot of us are trying to hitchhike back up to the top of the river to, to get back to our vehicle after we paddled down. And it's been incredible, the conversations that God has brought about in a car ride with a stranger. Um, another safer opportunity for you to experience this is on an airplane right? You're randomly selected, sitting down next to a person on a plane, and the opportunity you have to learn about that person's life and not just, oh, am I getting enough of the uh, elbow room here in this seat? <laughs> that would be the it's about me seat, putting yourself in their seat and saying, what is this person's journey? What has brought them to this place today? And why am I here sitting in the seat next to them? Yeah, yeah. You want to tell them about the, so this is all part of that continuation of you're not the center. Some people were asking me, how do you teach your kids that they really aren't the center? So what about the, um, do tell the story about the, the first class seat. I think that's really sweet. Yeah, I was, I, I obviously fly a lot, so I get upgrades, and I was upgraded to first class one flight. And I was sitting next to a gentleman um, who'd gotten on the plane before me, and then, uh, there was, you know, people filing down the aisle. I sit next to him, and then all of a sudden this lady comes down, and she's, like, waving and smiling to the person sitting next to me. And I was like, hmm, that's kind of weird. And then she just continues on to the back of the plane, and, and uh, I asked the guy, I was like, hey, was that, was that your wife that, like, walked down here? He goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, I travel a lot for business, so I got upgraded. But, yeah, you know, so you're she, in first class. Yeah, you're so, in the nice so she, did, she didn't get upgraded. She's, you know, she's back in economy, and, uh, you know, we're both just sitting up there in first class. And it just dawns on me, this principle of it's not about me. I love sitting in first class. Who doesn't? It's beautiful. And I said, nope. The Lord's calling me. I got up out of my seat, went back to that lady and said, hey, you got upgraded. Your husband's up there. Go take my seat. And I sat back in uh, economy class in a middle seat. And uh, it wasn't comfortable. It wasn't that God immediately blessed me, Right. Uh, it was an uncomfortable flight. She got to be with her husband up there. It was powerful. Um, the next four legs of that like ground trip journey I was going on, I got upgraded first class every time. <laughs> I don't think that would have happened had I not given it up. <laughs> um, there is a quote from a man named, uh, we say Henry Nowen. You might know him as Henry. Yeah, you can say it in French. I can't do it. Uh, and it's a quote about Christian hospitality. And I always like to make sure I include it someplace in my CFO talk of the week. Because for me, it's really important about what are we called to be? Who are we called to be? How are we called to be in the world? And this is an incredible principle for us, regardless of whether you're currently a parent, or we're talking a little bit about parenting and kids. But regardless, um, this is a principle that I believe that God calls his children to be. And it's about Christian hospitality, about making welcome. Imagine what our world would be like if all of our kids and us understood this and practiced this. He writes that Christian hospitality is primarily the creation of a free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people. I'm going to do that again. Hospitality is not to change people. 
but you offer them space where change can take place. Isn't that good? Hospitality is not a subtle invitation to adopt the lifestyle of the host, but the gift of a chance for the guest to find his own. That's what Jesus did. He made a space and then allowed God to work. You like that quote. You often use that. Yeah, and I challenge you um, as you kind of reflect back on these words that we're giving you of how do you want to be remembered in God's eyes? As someone who ran the race with a little bit of risk, not being terrified of the world, or do you want to be remembered as just someone who kept to themselves and they lived a beautifully long life but never touched anyone else's life? Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, there's so much we could do with that. We're not, we're not going to. Because um, a couple of things we want to talk about. Uh, those of you who are keeping track of numbers for us, this is number four, but it doesn't matter for you. Um, we want to talk a little bit about the power of, because of kind of a corollary of, you're, no, you're not the center of the universe, to the power of the discipline of delayed gratification. Team, can we get an ID on what does delayed gratification mean? Yes, no. Right on. Excellent. Awesome. Thank you. Right. Yeah. So, so, Mom, why in our household does Christmas seem to take two to three days? Yes! The power of delayed gratification. When I was growing up, I was the oldest of three girls, right? So I had this thing where I wanted to make Christmas last as long as possible. So, does everybody have one of these in their family? Anybody have one of these in their family? It's a certain temperament. I understand that. So, what I would do is I would open, you know, you, you, there's a couple big presents you'd open, but then I'd always save like, like seven little or presents. And I would open one every day. And I would stretch out Christmas as long as I could. I love that idea of keeping Christmas alive and delaying that gratification. I like that kind of yearning that happens, right? Once you open it, you know, right? But that, oh my God, I know. As you can imagine, my middle sister Leanne, it drove her bananas. Um, it drove her bonkers. And so um, she would try to find them. So then I would have to hide them so she wouldn't open my presents. And my mom got into it, so like, like maybe one of the presents like might be a, a pair of socks or panties. Like they weren't like big, big, but, but, but it was still the joy of waiting. How many of you enjoy, enjoy the joy of waiting? A few, some people. Some people. It's a definitely a temperament thing. Um, but, but I think, but I think it, now, so now with the, when our family, when our kids were growing up, we were those people. You know, you can't go downstairs until we go downstairs first. Here's a present on your bed. You know, you know, just wait till we're ready to go down. You have to remember, you know, we, you know, for us, Christmas is not a holiday. It's work. So, 
you know, we will do a service at 7 p.m., Christmas Eve will do a service at 9 p.m. By the time you get everything ready and you get everything together, you know, we're not going to bed till midnight, 1 o'clock in the morning. So it's a work day for us. So Christmas Day, you got to wait. Whoever it was that said, you know, you can't get up till the green light is on, I think that was brilliant. I wish I had done that. Like, that's awesome. That's awesome. I love it. Um, so we would go down and everybody, we would open one present at a time. You do that too? And doesn't it, it drives them crazy, but you know, exactly, everybody's looking, everybody enjoys, everybody comments. Okay, and, and, it, and so now that they've moved into other families and, you know, how they bring that to them, and we would read the instructions to things, we would stop and put things together. I don't know, I don't know why you're saying would. Would? We, we do. 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 <laughs> you know? You know, Sam would get, you know, some contraption. It's, yeah. it's been fascinating taking this. On the road. Uh, yeah, on the road to like the in-laws house. I had, a, my birthday was in May and we went up to my wife's parents' house and they gave me a shirt. And in our household, you just strip off whatever you're wearing and put the new shirt on right there. Check it out. One year, we got a bunk bed for Christmas. That was pretty exciting. You know, Christmas pauses, you go upstairs, rearrange the furniture, assemble the bunk bed before you move on to the next present. Uh, enjoying each thing as it goes along, not ripping through all the presents at once. And who knew we were preparing Sam for a life of delayed gratification where he's just working, he's a journeyman, he's grinding to, you know, to like achieve the highest level of sport. I mean, honestly, that played in. I mean, you have really gotten used to not getting all the prizes at once, haven't you, poor thing? <laughs> Occasionally, this kind of backfires. So this whole thing of delayed gratification, I think it's hugely important, and I'm sure there's a kingdom verse we can find if I just don't have it. But that, you, so Sam decided he wanted a snowmobile. We were not a snowmobiling family. But, you know, we do live in Maine, and, you know, hunting, fishing, snowmobiling is a big thing. So we said to him, and I wish I, I don't have it written down here how old you were, but you were not old. You were... I was like 10. Like 10. And he said, I want a snowmobile. And we're thinking, okay, treat him like an adult. You need to come up with the money for a snowmobile. What we did say since he was a kid, we said, okay, you come up with half the money for the snowmobile. We thought that was reasonable. We thought it would take a couple of years. We thought we had all kinds of time. (laughs) Well, that lit a fire. That left a fire under this kid, and he would do any job that he could. He mowed lawns, he picked weeds, he stacked wood, he dug ditches. I mean, he, and not just for us, but for anybody he could find. We had to buy that snowmobile a lot sooner than we thought. And not only that, can, you can't just have one snowmobile, right? You can't put a 10-year-old on a snowmobile and say, Here's the trail, right? Now you have to have two snowmobiles. So sometimes this thing backfires, but it does light a fire. It does light a fire, which is really nice anyway. <laughs> Some of the things you want to say about delayed gratification. <laughs> I remember sitting in a high school math class at one point, and we were just going over the principles of compound interest. Um, and I remember... Yeah, I do they know what compound interest is? I don't know. Yeah, we don't get other it than days. Noah, want to explain to me what compound interest is. Youth. Do you have a bank? Yeah, youth over here. Anybody? Take a guess. It's okay if you're not right. Mark, Marshall. Your money is extra money. That extra money is extra money. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yep, yep. Yeah, think like your money is making friends with more money and then like the more friends you have, the bigger network, kind of like a, a reverse pyramid scheme, I guess you'd call it. But yeah. Exponential. <laughs> Exponential. Yeah, so the idea, right, if you invest a certain amount of money and I was just sitting there in class like doing the numbers, like, okay, if I invest this amount of money by the time I'm 18, then by the time I'm 65, I'll have this amount. And just being like, whoa, <laughs> this is rad. I'm doing this. And got really motivated and, you know, started saving for my retirement nest egg before I even graduated high school. Um, and it was based upon these principles of delayed gratification that my parents had instilled in me. And if there's probably one thing that will make you successful at anything, I don't just mean sports. It's really understanding the idea of delayed gratification. To be truly great at something is going to take a lot of time. It's not like... and. You know, Jesus was perfect in all of his ways, but he was also 33 years old. You know, we don't have like a ton of stories of his whole life yeah. getting to that point, but he was building tools in his repertoire and, you know, preparing for this mission. And as we like prepare out for the missions in our life, that like delayed gratification of I'm building these strengths and tools now that I won't see the fruits of those for many years to come. One of the most powerful things that my parents did for me as a child is this. Not the delayed gratification part, but this next thing I'm about to share. And I'm not really exactly sure how they did it. You'd have to ask mm -hmm. them. But I'm just going to tell you from my perspective. They instilled in me some values at an early age that a lot of you have. Your parents love you. There's really intentional parenting going on at this camp, which is awesome. They're instilling you values at an early age that then take care of my decisions that I then faced as a teenager and beyond. So my parents, when I got in high school, you know, my parents never told me, don't drink or do your homework they had already somehow planted in my mind the idea and not telling me at that point, they had instilled within me these values that it became my choice to do those. Forming a mindset at an early age then allowed for the foundation to be built for success and, and teaching them lessons of early stages of relatively low consequences, repercussions for their actions. And part of that like, is allowing kids to make decisions and maybe fail at an early age. Instead of making all the decisions for them, they're in high school, they get invited to some party and all of a sudden they're faced with a decision and they don't feel like they've had like, any free will in their life to make any decisions at that mm -hmm. point. And that can be a really vulnerable place to be, right? Your peers have like hum tremendous influence on swaying you one way or the other. And I just felt really grateful when I got to that point. I was like, no, I know what I want to do. Um, and it's not, you know, go to that party or whatnot. But it wasn't my parents telling me at that point, oh, you know, you really shouldn't go there. And it's funny, once again, all of these principles when taken to extreme backfire. I can remember in high school, my dad coming up to my room saying, hey, like, let's go down and have a family dinner. And I'm like, no, like, I have to finish my homework assignment. And he's like, don't worry about it. Like, stop doing your homework, man. Like, <laughs> there's more to it. Like, let's go downstairs and be a part of the family. But I, like, was so ingrained in me that, like, this was something that I chose that I really wanted to do and succeed at, which is funny because I don't, some of you love school. You love school. I, love school. I don't love school. 
I'm still doing it. I, I believe in its value and merit, but I don't inherently say, oh my gosh, this is just so great. I hate it. I hate it. But I understand the attitude of delayed gratification and I see the fruits of adults in my life who went and got an education and didn't use it and have a job and I believe in that. So I'm willing to go through doing the assignment, doing what the teacher says, even though I don't love every minute yeah. of it. Yeah, and you don't. And then I, <clears throat> what's your graduation date right now? I, so I've started uh, college in 2016, and I'm about halfway through. So I'm six years in, halfway through. I've got another six years to go. So 33 years old. So never, don't ever feel like the ship sailed. There's always time. <laughs> <laughs> The challenging part I was saying at dinner was that we wish we had locked in at the price in which he started at 2016. <laughs> Couldn't we just pay for it like and be done with it? Because the problem is we saw we, how much money we had to set aside to like get that education and like each year it goes up so we need the same amount of money so we're approaching infinity. <laughs> Those of you who, anyway, that's a total aside, but, um, yeah, but real. Uh, and it's just a reminder that, and this is so hard for us as parents to practice our own delayed gratification we're not doing our kids any favor when we bail them out, right? And I think a lot of these folks know, so I'm just reminding you and just saying that these kingdom principles, it's one of the hardest parts of parenting is to watch your kids suffer. Oh my gosh, we suffer with you. We suffer more than you, right? When you, when you, when you lay it down, you say, this is what it's going to be, and you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to be painful. And we talk about um, appropriate consequences. Obviously, if I've got a toddler, they're going to a stove, you know, I'm not going to let them burn themselves. But there are times when we have these kind of acceptable consequences. We're going to let them ex experience the consequences of their choices uh, within an acceptable range. And that's what we're going to have to decide as parents. But boy, I work with a lot of parents who don't want their kids to suffer at all. Um, and, and I have to say, yeah, you learned to eat what I gave you. Um, because I knew that someday you were going to be traveling around the world and you're going to have to eat what they gave you, even if you had no idea what it was. Um, so last little bit about this. So Sam's in Little League. Sam's in Little League. Anybody play Little League? Anybody play baseball? Got any baseball people? Oh my gosh, this is not baseball territory. Thank you. I loved Little League. So much fun. Sam's, he's got it all ready. He's got the little pants and the long socks, and he's got his little cleats, his little hat. He's ready to go to, the, to get ready for the game. There's been trash sitting in the middle of the kitchen all day, and it was his job to take the trash out. So it started in the corner. Hey, Sam, you got to take down the trash. Yeah, I'll get to it, Mom. I moved a little bit closer to the middle of the room. Next pass through. Hey, Sam, uh, you, got, you need to take the trash down before we go. Yeah, yeah, I got it. I finally put it like in the middle of the room. It's going to topple over. It's going to make a huge mess. It's a paper bag. Sam, I need you to take the trash down. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll get it. So finally, we run out of time, and we have to get him there to get him for the game. This is not practice. This is a game. I said, oh, he hasn't taken down the trash. Okay, Sam, we got to go. We got to go. You know, you're going to miss. Uh, we'll, we'll do it when you come back. You know what he said to me? He's Little League. He goes, Mom, don't let me leave without taking out the trash. <laughs> you have to be tough here. <laughs> he really said this. I wrote a journal. You have to be tough here. Make me do it. Yeah, he reminded me to be a tough parent. 
and not to just let it slide. So we were working in partnership, and that's that thing about, I treat him as a human being, not like a little kid. So, so that, that kind of respect that we have for one another is, is pretty amazing. Yep, yep, we're a couple minutes late, it's okay. You made it, yep, you did, you took it. Uh, do you even remember that? I remember that oh, yeah. so clearly. Oh, I remember gosh. we were like in the car, like we were already oh, like head? buckled the seat and you kind of were like, okay, we'll deal with that later. And I just remember like, no, and we like got out of the car. <laughs> like, like, right, You go down to the basement, put it outside, put it in the can. I mean, you know, it was real trash. It really had to go. It's stinky. It's June. But that sense of which I gave him his life early, and so he was giving it back. We, we, we just, I don't know, you can just tell we respect each other a long time. Not going to belabor this, but um, our point number five for us, and he already talked about it, is that teaching your children that everybody lives under authority. I'm sure you guys have talked about that, right? Everybody lives under authority. You may not like that authority, but you live under that authority. When Ben was in kindergarten, my older son, uh, we, the, we have to drive everybody to the paved road to get on the bus to go to school. It's about two miles to the paved road from my house. And that is how we talk around here. <laughs> Directions to my house. Turn off the paved road. So we turn, get down the paved road. And take, do 27, 20 minutes to the elementary school. That's serious business. That's Route 27. That's logging trucks. That's lime trucks. That's uh, Poland Spring wa huge water tankers. Okay, it's a, it's a real road. So he hasn't been in kindergarten long and he gets kicked off the bus. That's a problem. Have anybody got, ever, got kicked, ever got kicked off the bus? <laughs> it happens. Thank you, CJ, for your honesty. Luke, anybody else ever get kicked off the bus? See, you guys don't, all the homeschool kids, you don't have to get kicked off the bus. I'm sorry, you missed this opportunity. But, got kicked off the bus, and they call you in the principal's office and, and to find out why you get kicked off the bus. And what it was is he was a little kindergarten kid, sitting, right? And the kid behind is, a, is an older kid, takes off his hat. So he, you know, he turns around to get his hat back. Well, now his little rear end's not on the seat. And he gets kicked off the bus. Well, 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 they're on Route 27. It's Lumberjack. That bus is packed with kids. And her, that bus driver's job, and she was a woman of faith. She prayed with those kids every day. It was her job to get them to the school safely. They have assigned seats, so that was going to be the person behind you for the rest of your year. You sit in that same seat so I know where you are, so if there's an accident, I mean, we take this seriously. And I just said to Ben, Ben, we all live under authority. <laughs> she is the queen of the bus. <laughs> and you are her loyal subject. <laughs> and what she says, you do. He was in kindergarten. Okay. You. But that sense in which he didn't have to like it, but it was for his safety. We all live under authority. What were you going to say, Cheryl? When you said kicked off the bus, you don't mean like Five days. Five days. No, goodness, no. No, no, no. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification. He was suspended from riding the bus for five days, which is a hassle awesome. for parents. Thank you. No, walk, kid. <laughs> right, no. No, 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 no. What'd you say, Karen?
every kid had to walk home. Yeah, that, that, I tell you, that, that bus driver, well, they'd be, he'd be walking for days, so that wasn't going to work. But thank you for that clarification. I, in my mind, it makes sense. Um, was there anything else about living under authority? You've talked a little bit about that already, so. Yeah, uh, one just kind of aside to add to, like my current authority that I really live under outside of God's authority is like my coach's authority. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I always agree with what my coaches are saying, particularly like we inspect the course before we race and we slip down the course and we go to certain turns and we discuss how we want to do this turn. And often the coach will have an opinion of how you want to do the turn and I will have an opinion. I respect their authority. I listen to what they have to say. I thank them for it. And then I, you know, take a step back in my reflection as I prepare for my run and visualize, okay, you know, take, taking what they said, do I want to do that? Do I not want to do that? But not disrespecting them in the moment being like, well, yeah, I mean, you would say that, but you've never skied this track, you know, and that's what's going on in my mind. But I don't say that. I recognize their authority and my respect to that authority. Yeah. I'm going to talk about, yeah, about this. And I don't know if you want to stand up here, if you just want to go sit. You, you, you want to stand up? Because you might, you might have something to add yep. about this. Um, and this is kind of a corollary. I just wanted to make sure I did the under authority part. But what, what I really want to talk about this, and this could be number six, I guess. And this is a kingdom principle. I think it's important we teach our kids. But honestly, it's, it's, this is really going to talk like to us. And that is to teach our children and teach ourselves that following Jesus is about more than our safety. This is going to get hard. I may get a little into, like, meddling here. But I feel really strongly about this. Um, and, I, and I really, I think it's a really important kingdom principle that we've, we, we don't wrestle with enough. To teach our children and to teach ourselves that the kingdom of God is not about our personal safety. Do you live as if the purpose of your life is to arrive safely at your death? For those of you who are now saying, what? What did she say? Do you... Do you live as if the purpose of your life is to arrive safely at your death? Because I would challenge you that if that is you, that is not kingdom living. That's not living in the kingdom. The kingdom of God is not about getting safely to the end of your life. Why would you say that? Jesus lived in the kingdom. Did he arrive safely at his death? From old age and arthritis? No. He poured himself out. Jesus lived at the edges. He lived at the margin. He did not live to be safe. He lived to make a difference in the world. So I'm not saying, take, you know, do stupid stuff, drive your motorcycle off the edge of a cliff and say, woohoo! I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Jesus did not live to be safe. Or as Sam has often said to me, do you remember saying this? Yeah. 
We must be willing to put self at risk for the larger good. And there's a lot of military families in here and you guys understand that principle, yeah. right? You're putting yourself at risk for the larger good. Yeah. Um, so there are folks within our culture that are, are practicing that a lot. And we often have to fight the temptation to kind of circle our wagons and do this when the kingdom is calling us to do this. Um, my concern is that, like, take Sam, for example. My concern is that we look at someone like Sam, and you may have somebody else in your mind that you can think of, um, but he's standing here. He's easy. We look at Sam, and we see him as the exception. Oh, this is some kind of crazy, extraordinary kid. He does this. He does that. Da, 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 da. No, he's so far out there, we can dismiss the challenges that he is throwing at us. That that's okay for him. He's a risk taker. I'm not a risk taker. But a thing to ponder in our you know, last day or so is, is that part of you that is not a risk taker, that part of you that is not a risk taker, has it been redeemed? Is that part of your new humanity or your old humanity? And I have to talk a little bit about what I mean by risk. I don't remember what book I love books. Like I said, I love school. I read stuff all the time. I don't know who to give this credit to, but I love this question. Here it comes. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? Wow. If I wanted to do safe, easy things in safe places, I never would have had the life that I've lived at Sugarloaf Christian Ministry for 30 years. How many of you are living the life you thought you would live? How many of you are living the life you thought you would live? Maybe one, maybe two. How many of you are like living in the place that maybe, like, like what does that mean? Like, and I just, wanted, I just wanted the kids to see that. Like you start out in a direction, but that doesn't mean that's where you're going to end up. All right? 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 And it's okay. It's okay. Yeah. So some things to think about in that question. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? Think about, like, how long have you called yourself a Christian? How have you grown? What risks have you taken lately that you might not have five years ago because you have learned to step out deeper with God? There are too many Christians who just live the same two years over and over again. Dad will, and I'm, I'm really trying to pull back from doing that, but oh, it's so hard. There are too many Christians who live the same two years over and over again and never grow up. So sorry. Not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm not pointing fingers, but it's like Peter Pan and Never Neverland, right? The boys, they never grow up. They never grow up. They don't become responsible. They don't become responsive to the call of God. Has anybody ever heard of one-way missionaries? So one-way missionaries. You have, I know you have. Bobby Joe, do you know what, what, tell me, what do you know about being a one-way missionary? A one-way missionary is not expecting to come back. Was there something else over here that somebody wanted to add? Over here? Was there somebody else? Ah, that was Earl here. He knows the answer to the question. Yeah. Say, say it again, Bobby Joe. Their life to 
Yeah. Particularly, it became particularly noteworthy in the early 1900s. Uh, they would pack all their earthly belongings as they went to the mission field. They would pack all their earthly belongings in their coffin. Not kidding about this. That's so intense, isn't it? I think this is from uh, Mark Batterson's book, The Wild Goose Chase, actually, if people are looking. Great book. Yeah, they'd pack it all in a coffin, they'd put it on the steamer ship, and they'd go. Are we training up our kids to be, to, to, uh, let, let's look at it, like, ah, we really think that we're called to do easy things in safe places. Um, I am going to read this quote uh, Mark, from Mark Batterson, from The Wild Goose Chase. Love that book. He says this. He says, I think we've made a false assumption about the will of God. We subconsciously think it should get easier to follow Christ the longer we do it. And he says, let me push back a little. I certainly believe there are some dimensions of the spiritual growth that get easier with the consistent practice and discipline, right, of spiritual disciplines. He says, but I also believe that spiritual growth prepares us for more dangerous missions. As we grow, God gives us more difficult things to do. That's right. You know, I could have shortened it. No pain, no gain. Yeah. Let me, um, I have, well, well, sorry, did you want to say anything you wanted to add about that? Because that's a really powerful thought. You want to add anything about that? No? You good? You good? Okay. Uh, I mentioned the other night Kate uh, Braystrup's book, The Main Game Warden uh, Chaplain, and she talks about this. I'm sure it's in other books as well. But she talks about a couple named uh, Dr. Samuel and Pearl Oliner, and they were a husband-wife team. They were social scientists, and they wanted to study, okay? They wanted to study, and they conducted a famous study, this is a number of years ago, about people during the Holocaust, during World War II, who made safe places for the Jewish people, who rescued Jewish people. So like Corey Ten Boom, some of you in like older generations. Have you, have you even read like, you know, like, like, you know, experiences of Anne Frank? We're talking about that kind of thing, right? So who were the people that hid the Jews? What made them different from the rest of their population around this? Why would they take that risk? Why would they do that thing? And they did this huge study. It's still being used and analyzed in a number of ways. And here's the actual question. They said, what was different about the people who risked their lives to save others? Why did they rescue while their neighbors either participated in the persecution or stood by and did nothing? They studied this. They wanted to know. Um, the, the couple was Samuel and Pearl Oliner, O-L-I-N-E-R. Just put their names in. Go Holocaust study, it will come up. So, they did all this study, compiled all this data. Some they did interviews, some they were collecting other stuff. Huge study. And they kind of distilled it into three clusters of traits that when combined together, motivated these people to be capable of dangerous selflessness. That's a Martin Luther King Jr. term. That was his language. Dangerous selflessness. Anybody want to take a stab at what those traits are that make some people rescuers for the kingdom? Anybody want to take a guess? 
Right? Any others? Faith, compassion. Any others? Courage. Courage. Been through it. Observation of what's needed. Yeah, it's good. We, we don't know yet, so this is. What, what was the last part? Love. Conviction. Conviction. What did you say? True. True. Okay. All right, so here come the three traits. It's good. I just wanted to get you thinking. So here are the three traits. They combine them, kind of distilled all this information. Here comes the first one. And, and, and I have to say, let me back up, that these rescuers, and we're going to call them the rescuers, they claimed that they learned these values at home from their parents as children. That's, why I'm, that's the context of this, okay? They learned, they would report, I learned this from my parents. I learned this from my mother. I learned this from my father. These values. And then as adults, they articulated them. Here's number one. A cognitive concern for justice, fairness, and equity. A cognitive concern, so in the mind, for justice and fairness and equity. So what does that translate into? How would you translate that? Put you on the spot. You didn't know you were going with this. What would be a cognitive concern for justice? For, like, how would that look like in a parent with a kid? I would, um, my mind immediately goes back to the, you're not the only one. And yeah. that there's fairness. Maybe it's among siblings. Okay. Maybe it's among your friends. Um, and then the justice of, like, there's consequences for okay. your actions yeah. in some yeah. ways. Yeah, and depending on the age of the child, it might go in further out into your culture. What does justice look like in your culture? Are people being treated fairly? Is everybody having an equal chance? So, and that's cognitive. That was a brain thing that they identified. Okay? They had a strong sense of justice, of what was fair. Corey Ten Boom, you can easily see that. Yeah, those of you who know her story. Everybody, when I use the word Corey Ten Boom, does that strike a familiar chord to people? The hiding place? Her secretary came here, I was going to say. There's definitely a CFO connection. Her companion. Fantastic. All right. Excellent. I'm so glad I mentioned her. Okay. The second, the second trait they identified, this will be our last thing. The second one was a heart concern. A heart concern for empathy, kindness, and caring. So a heart concern for empathy, kindness, and caring. An ability for your kids to learn how to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. That's right, what empathy is, right? Not sympathy, empathy. A chance to identify with other people's suffering. That's a hard one. It's huge. We can teach kindness, we can teach caring, we can teach a kid to say, I'm sorry. But empathy? Anything you want to say about that heart? All right. We're still working on empathy with you, so well, we'll skip that. Okay. So, just teasing, not throwing you under the bus. Okay. It's true. Third one. And here comes the clincher. Here's come, here it comes, here it comes. Ready? Third one. A strong sense of personal responsibility. See where I'm going with this. With Sam. A strong sense of personal responsibility... Not just, someone ought to do something. Two, I must do something. And it will make, actually, I didn't anticipate this. It's going to make me cry. 
Tot fell. Who was the first one there? Sam went hauling up the... Bam, he was there. That was just a reaction. Boy, I didn't realize I'd go in there. So a strong sense of personal responsibility, not just somebody ought to do something about this system. Somebody ought to do something about the mess we're in, to I got to do something. Yeah, CJ. Mm-hmm. And also, people have respect for some people, so they probably felt like they might be able to protect these people and maybe not get yeah. what they did, did not be yeah. hurt or whatever. <clears throat> some people feel they have to you know, stand up. Stand up. Yeah, and you think of how often Jesus stood up for the poor. Stood up for the bullies. Stood up when the Pharisees were going at him. You got to have clean hands. You got to do this. You got to do that. One of the rescuers uh, during one of the interviews said this, quote, I found it incomprehensible and inadmissible that for religious reasons, Jews would be persecuted. It's like saying that someone is drowning. You don't ask them what God they pray to. You just go ahead and you save them. Isn't that powerful? So as I conclude and we go on to rhythms, and I, you know, we're, we're getting to the end here. I'm sorry to dump all this on the end, because, but you know, maybe you haven't written your letter to God yet, or maybe there's something you want to do with this. But and just as parents, who do you want your children to become? Kids, you are going to be, many of you will be parents. Um, who do you want your children? Don't. It's not too early to start thinking about what kind of world do I want to create? What kind of life do I want to lead? Um, and how will you help them to get there? And what are you willing to sacrifice in your own delayed gratification? Like, what own delayed gratification? Because it's hard work. My kids were a piece of work. The hardest years of my life were them zero to four, zero to five. It was a lot of work. Sam is so lucky he was born. I never haven't talked much about Ben. It's a lot of work. Um, and, my, and like I said, you can't say really anything about your kids until they're 40, so I'm not going to... Uh, finish with this quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson. I keep it on my fridge. I keep it right at my desk. I see it every day. It's a picture of Ben and Sam. Ralph Waldo Emerson. Men are what their mothers make them. So, thank you, everybody, for indulging us. We really appreciate it. <laughs>